Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The New York Times called it the most daunting legal challenge in the country. That challenge, resolving more than 1,200 federal lawsuits brought by cities, counties, and Native American tribes against central figures in the national opioid tragedy, including makers of the prescription painkillers, companies that distribute them, and pharmacy chains that sell them. I had approached the judge who's presiding over these proceedings, MDL as they call them, multi-district legal proceedings, Judge Dan Polster here in Cleveland, Ohio. I had put out a request to do a podcast with him some time ago, and due to the fact he was heavily engaged in this, he was unable to do that, and he declined the offer. But as luck would have it this evening, I uh, ran into him at a uh, community event, and this was a special event that was put on by Cheryl Hirsch and the Community Advocate and Assistance uh, Director for the Jewish Learning Seagal Lifelong Learning Program. It was really a tremendous program. I had a chance to uh, meet and listen to the judge, and on today's podcast, you'll hear excerpts from this evening. It really was a remarkable and very candid discussion, and one that we hope has a a big impact on the opioid epidemic in our country. Throughout the event, Case Western Reserve Professor Andrew Paulus speaks about the MDL, and Judge Polster cautiously weighs in only on issues he's able to comment on at this time. The panel with Judge Polster on the multi-district opioid litigation was moderated by Kevin Edelstein, who is the CEO of the Cleveland Jewish News. And it also included Case Western Reserve law professor Andrew Polis. We begin with an introduction to multi-district litigation by Professor Polis. Issues of fact or law in common with gets shipped off to the MDL, even if it wasn't filed. So what we have in our federal, federal judiciary is a mass consolidation thousands of cases. You're already over a thousand, I think you meant. 1,300. 1,300 cases in the ordinary course being handled by up to 1,300 different judges in different... Each of those judges has an opportunity in those cases to consider the law, to decide whether it should go to trial, to do about settlement, ultimately to resolve it one way or the other, either through uh, motion practice, which apparently is currently underway in front of Judge Paul, or through a trial or through settlement. Having nothing to do with Judge Polster, my concern about the MDL process, however many there are, and puts all of that power in one person. At a time in our country where there's a lot of reason to be concerned about excessive power in one person, that's something that I have a lot of concerns about. Next, Andrew talks just a little bit about the specific aspects of this type of litigation as it applies to the opioid epidemic. Take something like the opioid crisis, somewhat unusual in our litigation system for a couple of different reasons. 
One of the reasons it's unusual is that in most lawsuits, the person that has been directly injured by the wrong is the person or the company that case, as Judge Pulser alluded to. We don't have individual who have been to suffer addiction or whatever other consequences of taking opioids. They're not the ones in this case. The parties that are suing in this case are governmental entities, municipalities, states, counties, Native American tribes, and they are suing to collect monies that they claim they have expended as a consequence of the opioid addiction crisis. And will expend. Which is an enormous amount of money. And I don't mean to suggest in any way that that's not a legitimate claim. I'm not opining on that one way or the other. Nor do I have any opinions that I'll offer here tonight on the issue that Judge Pulser indicated was pending before him, which is standing, which is a constitutional question, whether a person has in fact been aggrieved in a way that gives that person the right to come. But what I will say is that with a couple of exceptions that we have seen over the recent years, for example, the foreclosure housing crisis, the city of Cleveland tried to sue banks that had contributed to that crisis. Tobacco litigation involves suit. And that's a direction of legal liability that we don't have a rich history with. We don't have a lot of established law, not only on the question of standing, but also on the question of how one, the appropriate amount of damages would be. Next, the discussion moves on to the challenges of determining how to calculate the damages and how to assign responsibilities of liability. Think about it for a second. Let's assume that everybody who is afflicted with some opioid-related problem comes to you for money to solve the problem. You are the city. You are the government. You are the state. And guess what? You are. But let's assume that instead of being the collection of us, it's one person. And they come to you for the money. How would you then go about asking the party that you believe to be responsible, Walgreens or a pharmaceutical company or whatever it would be, how would you expect them to pay you back? Even if you had a claim, which expenses that you have incurred for these individuals are expenses that you believe are properly payable? And let's assume that you can solve that question. How would you determine which of the defendants is responsible for which portion of the monies that you have paid to help treat the patients? There's a lot of theory in tort law, and tort law is generally the concept of how we compensate each other for things that we do wrong to each other that don't arise in the course of a contract where we agree to, but they arise instead by operation of law. So you can't drive your car negligently. If you do, it's a tort. And if you do and you injure someone, you're responsible. In a case that involves, forget the distributors for just a minute, forget the doctors. Let's just talk about the pharmaceutical companies. If a particular municipality expended, let's say, $100 or $100,000 or $100 million to deal with the community issues that arise as a result of the opioid crisis, how do they allocate that $100 million to the defendants, even assuming that we can all agree that these are compensable? There's lots of tort theories on how you do that. One of the tort theories that has developed over the years is what's called market share liability. Market share liability suggests that each manufacturer of the drug gives a percentage to the pot that is commensurate with that manufacturer's, and it's been handled that way in certain cases in certain states. But it is not a theory of liability that has been accepted by all 50 states. That's important 
we can agree with you, you're allowed to say this much, which is that a large portion of the liability questions that, that are going to have to get resolved if this doesn't settle are going to be questions of state law. So every state, different laws about you can sue, although that's primarily a federal question, how you establish liability, how you prove damages, and how you divide those damages up among the various defendants. Next, we hear from Judge Polster about the magnitude of the opioid MDL. They're the pharmacies, the green CVS, Walmart, that's, that's really four layers. The doctors are pretty, three primary layers. And Andrew, we're talking about, so this is a federal case, more than 1,300 and growing uh, suits Judge, how many states and cities, county, state cities are we talking about here that are involved in this? Well, you've got, uh, Kevin, all 50 states. And, and what to further complicate this, all of the states except one filed their lawsuit in state court. And there are about 30 states that are still pursuing the multi-district, but they've made it clear that if they file their own cases, they'll be in state court. They want to be in state court, and they've structured their case to be in state court. But you're maneuvering through cases involved in every single state yes. of America. That's amazing. And we're just scary, actually, is what yeah, it is. But I, I do want to, there's one caveat in terms of, of my... Judge Polster shares more insight into the process. Something that I didn't realize is either they settle under the MDL, or these cases will go back to their original districts. What an MDL judge can do... While I have all these cases supervising them, need trials. The only cases I can try are ones that are cited in my district. For trial, a year from now, uh, is filed by the cities of Cleveland and Akron and the surrounding counties, Cuyahoga and Summit, because those are right here. And so even if there wasn't an MDL, that would be my case or, or one of my colleagues' cases. Just ultimately need trying. If they're not settled, uh, I can only try a handful, and the other 50 or whatever are going to go back to the judges from whence it came. Okay, and you said the pharmaceutical companies are involved, obviously. How many pharmaceutical companies are we talking about here? Ballpark. Well, there are six or seven major ones and a few minor ones. There are at least 20 defendants. There are three uh, major distributors distribute most of the pharmaceuticals, 70-80% of the pharmaceuticals in the country. Uh, Cardinal, which is in uh, Dublin, Columbus, and um, Lustre. And then there are the large pharmacies, Walgreens, Walmart, CVS. Next, Kevin read a passage from a New York Times article written about the case that would suggest an early win for Judge Polster. Mark Cheffa, who represents Purdue Pharma, <laughs> the makers of Oxycontin, tersely characterized the mood after one of the judge's sessions as he was cautiously optimistic. Just 10 days later, Purdue announced, it, Purdue is a manufacturer of Oxycontin, the farm, one of the pharmas. 10 days later, after that statement that he was cautiously optimistic, <coughs> Purdue announced it would no longer market Oxycontin to prescribers. I quote, this is a stunning about face by Purdue, which has long contended that it has not influenced physician education with its drug reps, said Dr. Anna Lemke, a Stanford addiction specialist who spoke at a Cleveland session. Quote, I think the overwhelming pressure from Judge Polster, not to mention the court of public opinion, led to this radical reversal. That's just one such instance of the effect of this on Big Pharma. That's huge, right? 
That it's was a major step. Yeah. Because, because and, and to my knowledge, no one is, is promoting these drugs. For years, Purdue had a very large sales force of men and women who went around the country and built. From Andrew's perspective, it certainly was a beneficial result. So what I would say about that is that it's a very good example, a beneficial result, in my view, that comes from a single judge that is supervising MDL litigation. But it's just as possible, because everything is consolidated with a single judge, that if you're trying to influence behavior in the marketplace, and that's really what tort liability is about, certainly we're interested in compensating people who have been injured. But the greater good of a lawsuit like this, as a standard, a jury gets to decide whether the behaviors of the pharmaceutical companies or the behaviors of the distributors or the, or the pharmacies or the doctors against our standard of behavior that we want to encourage our society to. And when you have a, a federal court step in and start to weigh in on what may be improper behavior or what a jury might ultimately find to be improper behavior, to see the defendants consider that in their marketplace activities, which is exactly its combination of the Court of Public Opinion and the Federal District Court in the Northern District of Ohio. Next, the panel talks a little bit about the virtues of this specific MDL case. The virtues of this MDL system are that all of the players are in one place, and you have one, in this case, very dedicated, very effective judge. Dedicated, whether effective. <laughs> Let me just say that I've been before Judge Polster, and I can tell you that if, if he could settle the case that I came to him with, he can settle just about anything. Next, Judge Polster talks a little bit about why cities were compelled to file in this particular case. One other interesting note, which I only understood as I got into this, one of the reasons all the cities and counties have filed their own cases, the tobacco litigation was filed by the states, the money went to the states, it didn't go to the cities and counties, and the vast majority of that $200 billion did not go toward patient and treating people, it went for other public purposes. And um, that's why... Like the syntax? Right. Funding sports, right. Whatever, sports whatever. venues. Well, I mean, you know, it wasn't stolen, but it went for other public purposes, not for that. So this time around, the cities and counties said, hey, it isn't going to happen, so we're bringing our own cases. So that's one of the reasons we have, I have now close to 1,400. Next, Judge Polster talks a little bit about having private individuals join the case and why, for the most part, it's probably not practical. Whether or not those will come to me or stay in their individual, I don't know. I so have, those are private? I have, a, I, mean, I, have a, I have a handful of those, but overwhelmingly the cases I have are brought by individual. In, cases by individuals are... Right, but do you see them happening? Do you see that, that if this goes I don't know. It would be pretty through. hard for any, I mean, just hypothetically, how any one individual... So, I mean, we have, I mean, what you're describing, Cheryl, is the more typical kind of product liability lawsuit that we have right. historically seen in our legal system. And in answer to the question the judge has raised, how would you figure out who's responsible? When we've had that issue come up in other kinds of pharmaceutical liability cases, that's how things like market share liability get created. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. 
go to relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With relink.org, help is just three clicks away. Next, the conversation turns to the settlement process. One important component of the MDO process that Judge Polster has has been using as the primary, if not uh, only, method of trying to get these cases resolved is getting the parties to talk to each other and try to reach a settlement because they are all in the room. And that's not something that you can do as efficiently if you don't have all the players together. It's possible to do it, but it's much more difficult. I mean, a, a thousand different judges couldn't do it. I mean, we... But in answer to your question, I would argue the, the other way, which is that if you have each of these cases going forward individually, then depending on what each judge permitted the plaintiff's lawyers to do by way of discovery, that is the depositions and the documents, you would have many more different opportunities to get at that, and some of them would be more successful than others. And I think you would still get the release of the information you might get a better quality and quantity of information out if you have that kind of divergent. I'm not saying it's working in efficiency. I'm just saying that I don't think that the MDL is responsible for the litigation or for the, the information coming out. It is the litigation itself that causes that, and that would happen whether or not. Inefficiency. Just for, in there, I've, I've authorized some over 500 depositions. Now I don't know if they'll actually take. 500 depositions were being taken in a thousand cases around the country. Resource it's unbelievable that that many are being taken in one case, which is me. Andrew offered his insight here into some of the risks associated with this type of litigation. You put so much power and, and hope and trust in a single person. Great if that person does a good job and gets it right. Catastrophic is a judge who gets it wrong and doesn't allow that discovery to go forward. So that's a scenario where an MDL actually might have prevented the information from coming out. If you had a judge who was hell-bent on resolving, for example, these standing questions first and not letting discovery go forward until some of the threshold questions were resolved, that might make all of that discovery unnecessary. So it can cut both ways. The judge shares his views on medication-assisted treatment. Which is somewhat controversial, but, um, well, because there are a lot of people who, are, who feel that you're just, you know, substituting one addictive substance for another and keeping people addicted. But the fact is, we've got millions of people who have lifetime health issues, and they're taking drugs, and they're highly functional. It's been proven effective. It is very difficult, and we all have default mechanisms. Guess what? There are a lot of stresses and pressures in our lives. The 12-step approach it sounds good. It is very difficult. And, the, and the, um, the, symptom, the withdrawal symptoms, you don't get those. You can manage it. And uh, so this law uh, encourages, encourages that. I, but it doesn't a lot of the other, the other behavior. Next, Judge Polster talks a little bit about his thoughts on the settlement funds and what specifically they would be used for. If there is a settlement, the money, I've made it clear that all the money is going to go, not going to go to roads or sewers. I mean, there's nothing wrong. We need money for roads and here. It's going to go to recovery. Yeah, yeah. So it would go to, um, that's where that's where the big amount of money is needed. We have, I don't know, two to four million at least. Next, I asked Judge Polster to expound upon how the any settlement funds would be used. I mean, the big need for money going forward, as I said, millions of people who are addicted. Each one of them is in danger of dying. You go on the street, you have no idea what you're getting. In Ohio, people think they're getting heroin. 
a whole lot of fentanyl, fentanyl like carfentanyl, which is take one dose of that and you're gone. All of those, all of those people, if they're untreated, they're, they're in danger of dying. I asked Judge Polster to comment on Big Pharma's track record of settling cases for amounts that sound very impressive to the average citizen, but in reality are merely a slap on the wrist for these companies who make tens of millions of dollars a day. If there's a settlement, there's a monetary component and there's a a systemic... So my recording of Judge Polster's answer to my last question went a bit sideways on me. So I called Professor Andrew Paulus from the panel and asked him to fill in the blanks uh, for uh, what Judge Polster was talking about when he referred to the monetary component and the uh, systemic component of any settlement. And here's what he had to say. So I think what Judge Polster suggested he is trying to do through settlement that, that could not be achieved in any other way is attack some of those behavioral aspects. He calls them systemic um, by getting uh, the parties to agree to certain things that the drug companies would find more palatable than paying a large sum of money. Um, so, for example, you mentioned the fact that they aren't using their uh, sales force out there to push, uh, maybe bad word, to, to try to get the doctors to prescribe opioids. Um, similar things might include educational initiatives, you know, opening treatment centers, you know, there are, there's really no limit to the kinds of creative opportunities that people can come up with if they're trying to reach a settlement that includes components other than money. But you don't have to necessarily, they don't have to have your approval to settle. No one needed, I mean, no one needs approval to do, make unilateral steps. Purdue didn't consult with me, they just they said, said we're, 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 we're stopping. They're stop right? working. I mean, I mean, they, what I'm getting at is that if there were a settlement that somehow the plaintiffs and the defendants could reach, even if you didn't think it was enough, for, I don't, as I understand it, you don't have the power. It's not, for example, like a class action in an MDL. It's just class action in the MDL. So that's just a plaintiff's attorney, right, mm-hmm. to accept on behalf of their client. It's a good point. Right. I, I mean, point. in theory, that's true. Although um, I think you're right that theoretically the plaintiffs and the defendants could, uh, you know, by themselves, that would be great. So you've inc- you've encouraged, but you've encouraged that in the, during all the proceedings, and said to address that. Look, we I want there has to be other than monetary outcome from this in any settlement discussion. Well, as a law professor, only you can bring that up, obviously. Well, I, I can tell you from personal experience, in a case where money was just never going to be something the parties could agree to, he was very creative in suggesting the possibility that there might be other steps that the parties could agree to that wouldn't involve money, but that would satisfy. So I have full confidence that I'm concerned, very good one, that, that sometimes throwing $600 million to keep people at bay the reality is that if the private parties, that, but they're not subject to any kind of review, if the parties to these litigations chose to settle for pure dollar amounts and nothing more, I don't know that there's anything that a court could do to stop them. As a, as a practical matter, I don't. I think it would be very hard in this case for there to be a settlement that I didn't approve all the details, but it would be... So earlier in the podcast, we were talking a little bit about the settlement and kind of speculating about the process. I came across a fascinating Bloomberg article on this. It's titled, Justice for Opioid Communities Means Massive Payday for Their Lawyers. And I want to read from uh, from that article just a little bit. But one thing is certain, if the lawsuits are successful, the winners 
will include the lawyers. A Bloomberg review of almost 100 agreements between the municipalities and their lawyers puts the stakes into focus. If the plaintiffs collect anything close to the maximum $50 billion that a global settlement may yield, according to a Bloomberg intelligence estimate, a handful of attorneys could pocket at least $12.5 billion. Bloomberg's analysis offers the first real glimpse into the money at play in what may be one of the biggest legal challenges in U.S. history. So the law firms, there's three main lead attorneys in this litigation, a gentleman by the name of Joe Rice, Paul Hanley, and Paul Farrell. And beneath them, there's a bunch of other lawyers. Anyhow, um, Mr. Rice has a uh, firm with 100 uh, attorneys, and he led the big tobacco uh, settlement that ended up being somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, I believe it was $246 billion back in 1998. Hanley, 67 years old, brought cases against the asbestos and pharmaceutical companies. And Farrell is a uh, native of opioid-ravaged Huntington, West Virginia, and he had multi-million dollar settlements under his belt when he began suing the industry. Um, and he has apparently the best understanding of the distributor's case. So that's the people at the top for leading this litigation. Here's another interesting thing. There may be investors funding the lawsuits who stand to benefit from this. There's actually litigation funding firms that typically help pay the costs of litigation in return for a portion of the recovery. And those would be people that these law firms engage. Back in May, Judge Polster issued an order saying that he wants to ensure that the litigation funding agreements uh, that were signed don't create conflicts of interest by affecting the plaintiff's lawyer's judgment in pursuing cases against the opioid makers, such as Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, and the distributors, such as uh, McKesson and Cardinal Health. What have we learned? Well, we've learned that there's state and federal lawsuits. They're both similar. With plaintiffs that are targeting drug companies such as OxyContin making Purdue Pharma and drug distributors including McKesson. The allegations include fraud, negligence, unjust enrichment, false advertising, and deceptive marketing. The legal arguments are complex, and it's unclear whether all of them or even any of them will survive the company's motions to to dismiss. But if some of the claims are allowed to proceed, the risk to the companies will grow significantly. So the cases that are in federal court, of course, are before Judge Polster, and those in state courts are before the local judges across the country. As these parties negotiate, the drug makers and distributors are filing dismissal requests. Polster has said that he wants to reach a deal quickly, but that's looking increasingly unlikely. Talks are going to include the lawyers for the municipalities, the drug makers, distributors, state attorneys, um, and the U.S. government. So from start to finish, this litigation could take four years, one lawyer estimated, and a settlement will almost assuredly include all the cases in state and federal court. So in the end, a deal could be one of the most lucrative in history and a huge disappointment to the communities battered by this crisis, or a big win for everybody involved. With countless lives and billions of dollars at stake, 
and both sides arguing their cases in the news media, the obstacles to resolution seem staggering. Yet, on numerous occasions, Alan Bonnert, a former law clerk, has watched Judge Polster take on the intractable. At the end of a long day, says Bonnert, where it looked like there wouldn't be a settlement, he'd walk out with one. And he'd wink and say, sometimes it takes a federal judge. We're going to follow this case closely. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.